Amen. Now let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24, as we continue our study in the book of beginnings and conclude our now five-week study in this third chapter. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. We have seen Adam and Eve created to live with God in the garden of paradise. And tonight we see Adam and Eve banished from this royal palace in which they had been made king and queen. And they are banished, furthermore, from the presence of the living God, from their loving father and his face. And in this, they suffer the worst of all. They lose communion with God in the garden. Let's look then to this story and consider it from Genesis chapter 3 verses 20 through 24 and consider what does it have to do with us. Hear now then the word of God. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless us. And our Father in heaven, we do pray tonight that your, your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask that you would help us receive your word with eagerness and faith. And we ask that you would lift Jesus before our eyes and encourage us, uh, even in this dark world, for we pray in his name, amen. Eden had been a world of intimacy between man and God. They walked together in the garden. Eden was filled with love and joy and peace. It was a spectacular place to live, and they were in peace and harmony with one another. And they were in peace and harmony with their surroundings and with God until until sin. There had been no sin in Eden until the fall. There had been no sorrow and no death, no tears, no misery. There had been no personality disorders or quirks, no grumbling or complaining. There had been no financial strains, no marital tensions, no child disobedience, no angry parents, no wars, no pollution, no boredom, no frustration, no, no nothing like that, friends. Simply pleasures, pleasures of God, from God, and with God 
in the enjoyment of God and his gifts. This is what life was like. But into that fellowship, as we have seen over the course of this study, into that fellowship, Satan came in the form of a serpent. And Adam and Eve believed a lie. And they were deceived. And they began to distrust God in their hearts. And they began to think God has held out on us. He has not really given us every good thing for us. They began to disbelieve the Lord. And then they began to have great pride and ingratitude to the Lord. And they rebelled. And they lost the right to the tree of life. And tonight we see their banishment. As one man put it, they are driven out. The gates are locked and the bolts drawn into place. Armed sentry stand on duty, preventing any possibility of return. Here is their final exodus, mankind's final exodus from the paradise that was, leaving behind sinlessness and leaving behind happiness in the face of God, unless God rescues us. And I want you to think about this passage tonight and what we see in it about particularly God and what he's doing and what he's done. And I want you to, I want to highlight four things. From verse 21, I want to highlight God's promise. And, or, sorry, verse 20, God's promise. Verse 21, I want you to see God's provision. Verses 22 and 23, I want you to see God's protection. And in verse 24, I want you to see God's prevention. Okay, we'll think about these things together. Go, go back to verse 21 at the beginning of the story. Here, having heard the curse on the serpent and having heard the difficulty, pain, and misery they will now experience. Now, at verse 20, Adam names his wife. He gives her a new name. He had said she is called woman because she was taken out of man. Now he says she shall be called Eve, meaning life. Why? <laughs> Why? Why does he do that? Why? Because he's looking back at the promise we've discussed at length now. At Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God puts enmity between the woman and Satan. And God rescues Eve from Satan who had sought to destroy her by placing a state of war between her and the enemy. And by reclaiming Eve for himself, God rescues her. And then God promises her a whole line of children which will culminate in a male child, a he who will crush the head of the serpent even while he is bruised. Adam remembers this, that God has is, God is promised to restore her soul, that she'll have kids. One will be the champion, warrior, victor, king. He will fight for them and win. And so he hears that promise and he believes it. And he looks at his wife, who is up to this point barren, and he calls her life because she's going to be the mother of all living. God's promise, I want you to see this, God's promise alters how he thinks about Eve. He begins to think of her, not as she is, but as God had promised she will be. He doesn't say to her, you idiot, how stupid were you? How could you do this to us? Well, she could have turned that around on him, of course. She was deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. 
But he doesn't do that. There are no screams here of, I hate you. You look what you did. There's no threat of divorce. He doesn't cast her off. He doesn't say, get away from me and never come back. He doesn't saddle her with a nickname, the deceived one. That's not what he names her, friends. He names her life. Not, by the way, Lucy, but life. Life because she's the mother of all living. He's not doing this in contempt of God's pronouncements upon them. He's not looking back at what God had just said to him. You are going to die. And sort of looking back at God and saying, oh yeah, well I'll show you. She and I are going to have a bunch of kids. That's not what he's doing here. What controls how he relates to Eve is not how he had failed or how she had failed. What controls how he relates to Eve is what God had promised her and her offspring. God's promise believe led to God's promise celebrated in a new name for Eve. And I want you to see, I want you to see how that, that alters everything. And that, that does so for us. The gospel changes, ought to be changing the way that we relate to other people. What we believe about people shapes our attitude and interactions with people. And an interesting example of that, of that principle is found in a recent study concerning IQ or intelligence. Have you, perhaps some of you seen this study? The, the study demonstrates that intelligence is not fixed but can grow. In a series of studies, kids who thought they were dumb and were treated like they had low intelligence and that intelligence was fixed, those kids acted dumb and they didn't work hard. But some kids were told that intelligence changes because the brain is a muscle that grows stronger with use. And those kids worked hard and improved and grew smarter. Why? They believed the promise that they could be more intelligent and they treated themselves differently and their teachers treated them differently. Their teachers didn't give up on them. Their teachers actually aimed higher. Friends, this is, this is believing a promise and acting differently in light of it. This is how we are exhorted in the Bible to relate to one another in God's kingdom. Believe the promise God has made about one another and let those promises shape our interactions. So, for example, in Christian marriage, when a Christian man marries a Christian woman and he believes God's promises about her, what promises? Ephesians 5. He begins to treat her with the same goal in mind that Jesus has for his church. If he believes the promise, he knows what's the promise of Ephesians 5, that Jesus has promised to present her as part of his church radiant in glory, faultless and without blemish. Jesus has come to secure a perfect bride out of imperfection. And so the man in the relationship is to begin to relate to her in the hope of what God has promised about her. One day she will be so radiant in glory, gentlemen, without blot or blemish, in redeemed and resurrected glory, that if you saw her today in that glory, you might be tempted to fall down and worship her. You shouldn't, but you might be tempted So the believing husband lives with her in prospect of her future glory. So then rather than putting her down for her faults and belittling her, 
He is instead to build her up in the love of Christ and speak the truth in love, certainly. You have to say hard things. And bring her again and again to Jesus for cleansing and so that she knows the guilt of her sin is taken away and he doesn't condemn her and neither does her husband. And put his hope in what God has promised to make her, a member of the perfected bride of Christ. Or take another example, friends. We all fail at these things as Christians, you understand. How differently Christian parents might raise their kids if they remembered that their children, in union with Jesus, are destined to co-reign with Christ over the universe and to rule the world with him. You know, Paul, in a different context, admittedly, in 1 Corinthians 6, in in which there's battles going on between believers and lawsuits, conflict, Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge angels? (laughs) He says, so you can settle some disputes between yourselves, please. Isn't there one of you here who can do that? This is Paul's language. So uh, back to back to family life. How differently we might treat our children if we lived. If we lived with them in the prospect of God's fulfillment of God's promises that one day they're going to sit with Jesus on a throne. His throne. Would it not humble us? And would it not curb our superiority complex? And would it not promote in us a a healthy respect for their individuality and for their dignity? Oh, that it would. Look at what God has done in giving his son for them. Look forward to what God will do in shaping them in Christ's likeness and make God's aim for them your aim for them. Make God's promise to them your instructor in how to treat them. Adam did. He believed what the Lord said, and he named her life. Enabled by God's grace. That's the effect of God's promise. And that's the first thing I want you to see, the effect of God's promise on Adam. The second is in verse 22. I want you to see the encouragement of God's provision. Here at verse 21, uh, God, uh, prior to sending them out of the garden, he clothes them. Ashamed they had been of their nakedness, they had quickly sewn fig leaves together and tried to hide themselves, hide themselves with fig leaves and hide themselves in trees. God does much more for them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And and so apparently, what does he do? Apparently, he takes an animal and he kills it and he skins it and he cures its hide and he cuts it into form and he sews dresses and long garments for them. Calvin says about this, truly, it was a sad and horrid spectacle that he, in whom recently the glory of the divine image was shining, should lie hidden now under skins to cover his own disgrace. And that there should be more attractiveness in a dead animal than in a living man. Surely this is a bad thing. And yet, and yet, think how Adam and Eve would have felt about this or thought about this. God is doing what for them? And what do we learn from this? God clothes them 
better than they could clothe themselves. And their hearts would have said, in spite of it all, he cares for me. He loves me. He's looking out for me. In the aftermath of a rebellion of monstrous unbelief and pride and arrogance and ingratitude, they see that God still intends to do them good. And that would have been an aid to their assurance, even while they're going to live with the unbelievable hardships of life now outside of the Garden of Paradise. Now I want to say to us how easy it is for us Christians to be tempted to think God doesn't care for us anymore, especially in light of our continuing sins. We say to ourselves, God saw what I did. God knows. God surely is going to get me for it. I deserve hell for this, we say, and we're right Surely that's what God will give me, and we're wrong. Jesus suffered hell for us upon the cross, and he, God, is now for us and not against us on account of the gospel, friends. How easily, though, we forget that. How easily we forget to take comfort, therefore, in in words like Jesus when he comforts his own anxious disciples about their lives, when he comforts them with the promise that God loves you and God cares for you, as he does in Matthew chapter 6. You might turn there sometime. Let me just read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount at length. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so Adam and Eve were comforted, friends. God closed them, their sin notwithstanding. And if there's any doubt in their minds that they're still important to him, that he still loves them, he takes it away. That's the encouragement in God's provision. Now, he does then banish them from his presence and his face in the garden. Even with that promise and even with the provision They are kicked out and they lose communion with God in face-to-face fellowship. And it is a real loss. And it is done justly because of their sin. 
But notice it's a real protection to them. God has, he explicitly tells you he has a positive purpose in mind in kicking them out. Verses 22 and 23. And so I want you to think about this protection and the enjoyment in God's protection. Notice what he says. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. See, they wanted to stay. And God made them leave. They were reluctant to go, and God drives them out. He expels them. And he sent them to a place of toil, but not of torment. Yes, they lose face-to-face communion with God. It's a real and massive loss. But they don't get hell. They get life in a broken world. They didn't get what they wanted, friends, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had said, remember, obey me about the tree and you'll remain the unbroken image of God in this place. Satan said, disobey God about the tree and you'll gain the likeness of God. He fooled them. Adam ate of the tree and he became a twisted wreck of his former self. Now what they want, of course, is happiness. The happiness of utopia. They want to stay. But that is what they've already lost. Why did God send them out? It says the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. What does that mean? That's God, I think, speaking tongue in cheek. God speaking ironically here. God isn't saying Adam and Eve in all their sin and wickedness is now like himself here. No, no, no. God does know good and evil. He is good and he knows good. Personally, and he knows evil too, but not by practice. He knows evil as a physician knows disease. He knows it's foul pus. He knows it's infectious spread of decay. He knows it leads to death. He understands it better than we do. But he's never practiced it, lived it. He's good, but now Adam knows evil by practice, and he knows it intimately in his own experience, and he knows it as disease, and he finds that he is not the cure, but he is its cause. And he is not the physician, but he is the patient who needs to be cured. So now God's going to remove him from the tree of life. Why? So he doesn't confirm himself in a state, in a permanent state, of sin and misery. We might ask the question, what kind of life or eternal life would they have had if, hypothetically, they had eaten of the tree of life, as if God couldn't have stopped them from doing that? Or as if God was duty-bound to give them everlasting life in bliss in heaven if they just got, got a hold of the apple before God got to it? No, 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 no. But what condition were they, were they in, friends? They'd already been told, chronic pain and misery. Tension in marriage, thorns and thistles forever, guilt is in their heart, a corrupt nature is in their heart, they're depraved. And one day, death will bring the consummation of that pain and misery forever. That's the kind of life they were in. It's a great mercy then that God stops them from taking hold of it and God protects them here. And God says, you will live forever but the way I want, not the way you want. 
So what we all want is to be happy. It drives everything we do. Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. And I agree with him. This, there is, he says, this is without exception. Whatever, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even, he says, of those who hang themselves. Happiness, friends. But our fallen hearts want the utopia of living in luxury. And our fallen heart thinks we'd be just fine with that without God. And God says, you will not have that. Twisted hearts want their best life now. We think it's a place that is here. A set of circumstances. The fulfillment of certain desires. If we say to ourselves, if I could just get this, just get that, then I'd be happy. We're restless. And, and even when we get happiness, friends, right? Whatever we think that thing is, the law of diminishing returns kicks in. And the joy of it fades over time. And we want something else or something more, something different. We're never satisfied, not fully, not here. We're never satisfied because we've deceived ourselves into thinking our happiness is found in a place or a location or a set of circumstances. And it is not. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with God in which God knows us and we know him, in which he pardons us and accepts us and he welcomes us with delight into his family and his smile is upon us. That is our blessed condition, glorifying and joining God forever, where at the right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So God says to Adam and Eve, you can't stay here. You can't have what I once offered to you the way that I offered it to you. You've already rejected it. You already said no. Now, God says, I have something better for you. It's the rest of the Bible, friends. And it comes through a Redeemer. If you want salvation and all the happiness that brings, the Redeemer, God says, will have to come for you and suffer for you and rescue you and bring you back to me. So what God is doing in kicking Adam and Eve and all of us out of paradise, he has deliberately placed us where our heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. Because he made us for himself. So he puts us in circumstances where we'll not be content, but where we will long for him and only what he can give us. That's, that's protective, friends. It's protection from ruin. And it brings true enjoyment in God, not in earth. An earth that is no longer heaven. So we've seen the effect of God's promise. Adam believes it and it changes his relationship with Eve. We see the encouragement in God's provision as he clothes them. God loves them. And we see the enjoyment in God's protection of them. But finally we see the last thing. The, we see God's prevention, verse 24, and to put it somewhat strangely, the entrance in God's prevention. Uh, verse 24, what happens here? God banishes them, expels them from the garden. And then having driven them out, we see at the east, 
He placed the cherubim and he placed a flaming sword that turns every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, God prevents them and us from downplaying our sinfulness and belittling his holiness and thinking that we can just waltz our way back into the presence and favor and smiling face of God. God prevents us from that delusion. They didn't want to leave. He drives them out. They'll want to come back and he prevents them. And the angelic cherubim are threatening anyone with death who would seek to enter. And the flaming sword is threatening anyone with death who would seek to enter. And the angel and the sword are a warning. It is death to try to get into the presence of God on our own terms in a sinful condition. But here... God appears to be against them, and he is. He is against them from returning to paradise and face-to-face communion with God while they're sinful, corrupt, imperfect creatures who have no right to his face, the face of the pure and perfect, sinless, good, and holy God. He is against them. He's against them from trying to save themselves by orchestrating their own relationship with God on their own terms. And God did this, friends, to drive them to despair. To drive them to despair in trying to fix themselves. To drive them in the hope of God's rescue. God did this to keep them from bad things by going backward in order to prepare them for better things which are yet future. Now their hope of going back is cut off. It's not just difficult, it's resisted by God himself. They have no salvation going back. No communion with God in going back. But they do have hope looking forward as they remember the promise of life given to them in the promise of a Redeemer who is coming. And you remember that that Redeemer came. Do you remember, friends, at the time of Jesus, there was a temple in Israel where God was worshipped. And in that temple, there was a most holy place where God dwelled with Israel. And separating the most holy place where God manifested himself was a curtain that divided him from the people. And on that curtain were embroidered what? Cherubim. The cherubim are angels associated with God's holiness. And in the Garden of Eden, really, and in the temple, symbolically, cherubim barred the way into the presence of God by sinful people. And they remind us, we don't waltz our way into the presence of God like it's a stroll in the park on a sunny day. We don't have any right to be there. But in the temple, one day a year, by God's command, the high priest went through the curtain covered with cherubim. And once a year he entered, passing through that curtain with the blood of a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And once a year, the representative of God's people went into the most holy place, as it were, back into the Garden of Eden. But he only did so with the blood of a sacrifice. He only did so with the sacrifice that substituted for the death of himself And the people, the death they deserve in the presence of God. And now, friends, after Jesus, who is our great high priest, how do we get back into the presence of God? Jesus. 
On the cross, Jesus, our great high priest, sacrificed himself for us. And when he did, Matthew 27, verse 51, tells us that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Because the sword that was to fall on any human who would re-enter, that sword fell on Jesus and it killed him. And so the curtain was torn in two because Jesus died. And in him, access to God was opened. That's why Jesus can say to you, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the way to the Father. Through the curtain. Because he has passed through the flaming sword. And he has suffered death by the hand of the death angel. In our place. So friends, the cross is not some motivational tool to convince you that you should just really love God because isn't it wonderful how much God loved you? It's more than that. The cross is the expression of the wrath of God against sin and sinners. And Jesus is executed for sinners that the wrath of God might be satisfied. And the cross is the expression of the love of God who sent his son so the door into favor and fellowship may be opened wide and made safe. And so God's prevention of our first parents' entrance into Eden was in order to secure our safe entrance into the presence of God in heaven forever through Jesus. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews says to you, come with confidence. Come with confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You may draw near with confidence. No need to be sinless. Jesus has you covered. No need to be shy. Jesus is all your confidence. Let's pray. We bless you. And we thank you. And we praise you. And we adore you. And we need you. And we pray you'd have mercy upon us and help us to know these things. Grant that our hearts would believe them and make use of the access we have. Help our souls to come to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.